Hello fellow sports photographers, my name is Dean Mokteropoulos, or All Sports Stapper, as I am called by no one but use on my social media, and I'm a sports photographer working full-time for Getty Images. Welcome to the Sports Photography Philosophy Podcast, where I have open discussions with the world's best sports photographers, as well as speak about my experiences traveling to various places around the world covering events. In this podcast, you'll get an insight behind the long lenses from the men and women who fill our sports pages, websites, and magazines with amazing imagery. To those of you who have listened before, I'm changing the name to the, of the podcast, which you may have noticed I slipped in at the beginning. Previously known as the Photography Philosophy Podcast, I've added the word sport, just because it makes more sense. Previous listeners, you know the drill by now, but for the newbies, any questions or comments, get in contact with me via Twitter or Instagram on AllSportSnapper or my website, AllSportSnapper.com. Today's show is one of a two-part special, and I want to emphasize the word special, as my guest is the man who started the sports photography industry back in 1968. The now iconic image from Mexico Olympics of Bob Beeman smashing the world record in the long jump shot by the one and only Tony Duffy. A keen amateur photographer at the time, this image was the very beginning of the sports photography industry as we know it today. We speak about that photo that began it all, starting an agency really from scratch. We mention some legends of the sports photography industry, some which are very much still in the game, shooting the Olympics in the 70s and 80s and then becoming the official sports photographers for the Olympic Committee in 1984 how the paparazzi after the death of Princess Diana affected the sports photographers at the time, making a photographer the photo chief at major events which changed the access and the industry and much, much more. I hope you enjoy the newly named Sports Photography Philosophy Podcast. Hello fellow sports photographers, welcome to the Photography Philosophy Podcast. I have a very, very... I can't say enough varies here for this one. Very special guest, Tony Duffy. So, um, yeah, let's just uh, start. Tony, if you could uh, just introduce yourself a little bit and tell us just a tiny little bit about yourself, and then we'll start with some questions. Is that okay? Sure, yeah. Well, um, I think I'm the person responsible for uh, you sports guys having jobs because I started as a freelance eventually formed a partnership which became a limited company called All Sport and it was All Sport in 1996 that was taken over by Getty and became the sports arm of the uh, the gay empire. At the time, just before the takeover, I parted ways with the other directors of the company and uh, basically retired, and um, although you never really retire in this business, but I retired from the hard day-to-day graft and um, just sort of took it easy. This change was at the start of the digital um, wave uh, around about the millennium, and um, I figured this wasn't a bad time to stop because everything I'd spent the last 40 years learning um, turned out to be uh, fairly useless in the digital age, um, from taking the pictures to transmitting them to just about every aspect of the business. So 
I'm no expert on current conditions. And for those, you have to go to Dean and his colleagues. But <laughs> I can tell you what it was like in the old days, if that's of any interest. And of course, some of the principles that applied in the old days still apply. And I, as I always used to say to people, the one thing you can't teach is the eye. Either you have the eye for a picture or you don't. And no amount of good equipment is going to compensate for not having the eye. So if you've got the eye, go for it. You're in business. <laughs> well, this is the part of the, you know, you know, we had a, a very brief conversation before we got uh, started the recording for the podcast. But, um, you know, the, there's a saying sort of like standing on the shoulders of giants. And uh, I'm one who definitely um, loves speaking to people like yourself. I mean, you're the the godfather of it all but you know people like Mark Leach and uh, who have sort of uh, Leachy who have been in the business for such a long time and sort of made it pretty much paved the way for us uh, you know novices rookies youngsters to sort of um, to have a career in this industry so I mean you are looked up to and I know lots of sports photographers at Getty Images I'd say even I'd be even I wouldn't be shy in saying the majority would say their favorite sports picture of all time is your um, iconic image um, of uh, Bob Beeman. So, I mean, can you, before we even start going any further, can you just, I mean, this is a question I ask everybody because it's just something I find curious is, uh, you know, what's your first photographic memory? Um, you know, when, when did it all sort of, when did it all start for you? Well, it all really started with a Beeman shot in 1968 because... I was a complete amateur at that time. I had a full-time job, an office job, and I went to Mexico City Olympics uh, during my vacation and went on a sort of a tour. Uh, it was a tour to see the Olympics rather than to see the scenery, but um, we had seats in the stands and the day of Beeman's long jump, um, I was able to get to the front because the long jump pit was on the outside of the track rather than on the inside. And as it was a race going on at the time and Beeman's jump was only the fourth jump of the first round, um, there weren't very many photographers there and I was able to get an image of his jump, um, which I didn't realize for at least another six months was one of the very few images of that jump. And that's really what started the ball rolling. I didn't turn full-time professional for another four years. Uh, January 72 was when I officially um, formed, you know, all sport. And although we always date it back to the Beeman jump in 68, in the intervening years, I was um, helping to you know, build up a network of uh, contacts and sales outlets that I could use uh, to go from being a, a part-time photographer to a full-time photographer. I've read like, you know, different, you know, I've gone online and I've had a quick look and, you know, obviously your name is, you know, there's lots of images and, you know, iconic images, you know, go back, going back, like you said, until, you know, into the, well into the 70s. And that, that, that image that, you know, that, that the photo, um, you know, the, the open stadium and uh, the jump itself, I mean, 
this is the question I want to ask. The, 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 one of the ones I want to get, you know, straight from the horse's mouth is there was there's certain people that have said, you know, again online and with colleagues that was that the jump that was the world record jump itself, or was that just him competing? <laughs> I mean, uh, good question. Um, I mean, and it took me. Remember, a... If you don't remember, you don't remember. No, 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 no. It's you're not the first to raise that, okay. and it's. It and it is in my opinion, it doesn't make a difference. Like it, you know, it's an iconic image, whether it be you know, it, like you said, yeah. everyone else has got it. But it's just the question that I've I've sort well, of asked. No, I'm glad you did raise it because um, a few months after it started to get widely published, um, a colleague, unbeknown to me, had uh, contacted one of the magazines and said that wasn't the actual jump. Okay. And I thought to myself, well, how the hell do I prove that it was? Okay. And um, okay. because after he'd done that jump, I mean, the competition was effectively over on the fourth jump of the first round because he jumped so far beyond the previous record that all his competitors just sort of gave up. You know, like, what the hell are we going to do? We, can, we can't even get close to that. And Beeman himself was quite shattered. He took he took the record from twenty seven foot two, a record that normally improves incrementally in half inches and inches. He completely bypassed twenty the rest of twenty seven feet, the whole of twenty eight feet, and ended up at twenty nine foot two. Amazing. So I mean it was such a mind blowing jump that everyone connected with the long jump was just staggered. And it took 40 minutes to measure the jump correctly because they, it was beyond the electronic measuring device. They couldn't believe the tape when they measured it by tape, so they called for a second steel tape, etc., etc. The whole rigmarole took another 40 minutes. By that time, the afternoon thunderstorm had arrived and the skies darkened. It was pretty dark during the first jumps. We got a thunderstorm roughly every afternoon at four o'clock. So of course they started the afternoon evening events bang on four o'clock. And um, for the day of the long jump, same thing happened. Uh, it started to rain. And in the meantime, Beeman had put on his sweats and his black socks. And the, the pictures that existed of his first jump, the record jump, he was not wearing socks. The pictures that were released of him claiming a bit of jump when he was wearing his black socks as television proof, those were the second jump. His second jump was a half-hearted effort. I'd left by that time. I'd gone somewhere else, another part of the stadium to try and gate crash, you know, finish line or somewhere. But, um, uh, the people who got the pictures of the second jump was when he was wearing those black socks. And uh, and that was a 26-foot jump, and it was a half-hearted effort. And he said, right, after that, he said, that's it. And he just quit. I'm done here. So that pretty well <laughs> nailed it. You know, I was fortunate that he'd put these socks on because otherwise I'd have been totally uh, stymied and I would have just had to like it and lump it, you know, if people would say, oh, it wasn't really to jump, you know. Amazing. That was one of those, it couldn't happen today, not with the numbers of photographers there. 
and the equipment available and everything else. Well, unique images so. are uh, harder to come by these days for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I you guess, have to look uh, at the Olympics these days and see the wall of photographers greeting everybody. I know. Uh, it's unbelievable. I mean, Was it a thousand, a thousand photographers and you have to, you have to get tickets? You have to so, get so the stadium for the finals. Every corner um, has other, you know, if you don't make it into this, into the first corner, you go to the second corner and you go to the third corner. Like you pretty much work your way around the stadium until everybody, everyone's filled up. And I mean, then you go wow. to entertainment photography or something like that, where you see walls of photographers on either side of the red carpet. I mean, it's just the, the, unique, yes. the unique image is just, uh, yeah, very, very difficult more difficult to find yeah, for sure. one of your colleagues came up with a couple didn't he from rio uh the, the bolt yes. the bolt um well, again, smiling picture there was yeah, and the three girls jumping yeah there's, okay. um, the bolt photo was um uh, with uh, cameron uh, cameron cameron Spencer. that's the guy yeah. yeah and i mean there's another photographer german photographer kai um faffenbach who's got uh, a very similar again similar frame but yeah, there was, yes. there was three or four photographers next to each other and only two of them. Yes, in the, image. So, yeah. in the infield. Yeah. yeah. But again, that's an exclusive uh, access area. You know, there's very, the, only the Absolutely, agencies. very few photographers there. Uh, and the ones on the infield tend to go for the finish rather than the mid-race. Yes. Um, exactly. And it was a good call uh, to use that pan shot in the semi-final because you don't risk it in the final well that's exactly that's the thing as well like uh, uh, yeah. we have to be um, you know would have to have very big brass ones to try and do that in the final <laughs> <laughs> yes you would outsize <laughs> ones yes uh, like you you're lucky in some uh, olympics but i remember in 1980 the olympics 100 meters which a british guy won he was in lane one, and the fa the favourite was in lane nine. Oh wow! <laughs> so first and second was lane one, lane nine. Okay. Just imagine the photos if you'd wanted to take a generic picture of the final. Normally, you go lanes four, five, and six, and you're pretty well assured of getting the winner out of those three lanes because they see them but in those days they just do lots yeah you yeah, yeah yeah that's a difficult choice because yeah, yeah no one ah. wants that second place photo unless the person no. from that country <laughs> well i went with um more with wells but i i did have to keep it a, a lot looser than i would have wanted yeah, um, of course <laughs> uh, yeah anyhow all right so um you've we've gone from 1972 and you've now got uh you've um, see again, like I've read different stories about, you know, some said it was six months until you started the agency. So, you know, you've submitted this picture to an amateur magazine, and then it sort of exploded from there. And that yeah, was... that's true. I actually formed an agency called Allsport, um, and it was just a, a business name, really. And I thought Allsport, you know, let's get a name that if you look up the directory of photographers, it'll be right up front because of the A. <laughs> and it says what we do, and it included all sports, you know, which is rather most of the in those days just did one sport, um, the, the freelancers I'm talking about. And they would just into it because they used to, you know, be involved in the sport one way or another. And then when they retired, they'd continue to be involved taking pictures. And because I understood the sport, their pictures tended to be better. So, um, yeah, that's uh, it started with all sport the agency, and I was completely freelance, just myself. 
And then uh, when I seriously began to think about turning it into a proper full-time business, I realized a few things, really. One was that never having been to a class on photography in my life and not really having read many books about it, I was completely self-taught, you know, trial and error. And um, I realized I needed someone that had technical background, a photographer that could fill in the gaps in my my lack of knowledge, if you like, of um, photography. And I fell in with a guy called John Starr, who was a studio advertising photographer. And um, he was uh, a little bit younger than me, about 15 years younger than me, but good guy. And um, he, you know, took a chance with me and uh, we we started off together. And then uh, the next thing I realized was that in those days, most sport took place at the weekend. So it's difficult to imagine now what the sport scene was like in those days. There was no televised sport. There was no internet, obviously, no digital. And um, the only real market was newspapers, the mm-hmm. daily newspapers. In London or in Britain alone, there was 10 national dailies. Wow. You know, three heavies, two or three middle-of-the-road ones, and half a dozen tabloids. And um, they used, they all had their own photographers, and very often more than one. A lot of them had photo departments with their own photo editors and, and darkroom boys and different photographers for different things. It was big business. Um, nowadays you look around and newspapers uh, maybe have one or two staff photographers and rely heavily on the agencies and there was no no, nobody was using color right that was another thing Uh, in the 60s everything was black and white Um, so I realized oh and, and everything was local I mean the newspapers other than the Olympics and the World Cup didn't really send people over to other events. Like, for example, they wouldn't dream of sending a photographer to shoot the Aussie Open tennis or the Masters Golf in Augusta or the Monaco Grand Prix in Europe. They would just have their photographers shoot the the football, the cricket, uh, Wimbledon tennis, you know, and the boat race, those sort of local events. So I thought quite early on, if I was to shoot color because you could see color was beginning to come in. And I thought if I was to shoot color, I found it a lot more rewarding as a beginner, you know, to shoot color. Um, then I could keep the transparencies and they would be, you know, they would form a library. Yeah. Historical record as well. Right. And so the next thing I realized was with all the sport happening at, the weekends, I could only be in one place at a time. And this was a crucial thought that occurred to me. If I had other photographers around me, we could all shoot different sports and we could get the whole bloody thing covered. And then um, that was how the whole concept of all sports started, where we eventually hired Dave Cannon for golf, Adrian Morell for cricket, Bob Martin all-rounder. Um, Dave Rogers Rugby. Uh, over the years, we added these people to the staff. 
And the All Sport Company was a sort of umbrella, and we all worked together. But within that sort of umbrella, each single one of us was responsible for our own sports. So, like I said, Dave Cannon would be responsible for the golf coverage and Adrian for the cricket coverage and so on and so forth. So we had people that took care of the secretarial side. Um, we had library staff and salesmen and so on. These evolved over the years. Our first, our first um, studio uh, and our first office was the back room of a friend's insurance office on Croydon High Street. And he had this big area at the back, which is full of rubbish and skips and stuff. And it had a, a restroom with a wash basin and tucked away. It was like the black hole of Calcutta. It really was. It was <laughs> and we, we saw our eyes lit up and we said, Nick, his name was Nick Paul. We said, Nick, could we use that back room to get our business started? And he said, yeah, go for it. So we cleaned it up, turned the, the main area into a studio and turned the lavatory area into a dark room because it had the running water. So that's how, that was our first office until we moved to Martin Way Morton, probably in about 1973, perhaps, or 74. That was our first office. But from then on, we always had a studio we always had a sort of library department. We always had the backup. All those things set us aside from most of the other photographers in those days who were content to shoot black and white. And if you didn't have a job with the newspaper, you were lucky to make a living out of sport. It's just different, uh, Dean. It's just different strokes for different folks. At the time, it was a completely different landscape. And um, you either adapted to it uh, or you didn't make it. And it's the same today, I'm sure. You, you know, you have to look at the landscape and adapt to it and realize where the opportunities are. That hasn't changed. But I could talk till the cows come home about my early days because I remember them vividly. And um, But it wouldn't. It doesn't mean that much to youngsters that don't even really want to know about what it was like before you had digital cameras. Well, this uh, is the so. thing that I'm, you know, uh, I don't know, maybe because I'm doing digital now and I just, you know, this this sort of saying of, you know, standing on the shoulders of giants sort of thing, you know, like you guys, you guys just made it so, uh, you know, you know, you guys paved the way and, you know, like... You know, you look back at this. There was, a, you know, for the listeners out there, there's a book called Visions of Sport, which is sort of this, oh yeah, yeah, which is this uh, uh, I don't know what it is, wealth of imagery and uh, a, a, it's like a it's like a vault of you know the greatest photography, you know, and it's when sports photography I think sort of became this uh, an art an art form in itself. You know what I mean? When it wasn't just about yeah. You know, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't just, just about getting a winning goal in black and white for the newspaper. It was, you know, taking great images. Yeah, using and, light and, you know, composition, yeah. different shutter speeds, you know, that which hadn't sort of been, you know, maybe uh, expressed in 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 sport um, anywhere near. So that that kind of, you know, that that when you look back at that book, you know, and I guess in a way it's sort of like, you know, when uh, in a, an old National Geographic, you know, these, it's yeah. been around. Yeah. 
that's the way I, that's the way I see you know. And when I look at when I look uh, at this book, you know, like uh, you know, obviously Bob and the names you mention, you know, I've Bob learned, Martin was the leading light behind that. And Bob is still and you know, hello Bob oh, if you're sorry. listening, and Bob you will be interviewed by me. We've we've been uh, in the process of trying Back to get him Bob down. Into Good it. luck with him. He's <laughs> very busy. <laughs> Not like me, man. That's I know. But he's um you know Bob's still still in the game still. Oh, you know, very still much so. Scoring. He's at the peak. Yeah, still scoring goals. You know, he's still producing yeah. amazing imagery. Um, Absolutely. You know, Dave Cannon, another guy I've learned a lot off as well. Still, yeah. you know, walking uh, walking up the fairways and still <laughs> producing amazing imagery. Dave Rogers has just been uh, recognised as the oldest. Uh, or sorry, I shouldn't say that oldest. Sorry, Dave. Uh, the longest serving <laughs> Lions tour. <laughs> Good correction there, Dean. Yeah. <laughs> longest serving Lions t- uh, Lions tour um, uh, staff member or, or participant wow. you know, whatever you want to say so you know he's been recognized yeah. for his uh for his years of service on the lions tour you know these guys are you know still involved and still producing amazing oh very much there. so yeah you know, and these are the guys and it's sort of part of the reason i use the word all sport in my uh, my twitter and uh, social media handle as well because oh. it's sort of like a bit of a homage to the uh to the people I've learnt off. That was the reason I used the word all sports snapper in my uh, in my hand in my Twitter handle. So oh, know, when, that's I speak good. To yeah. people, when I speak to people like yourself, uh, uh, you know, I, I don't mind forgetting about the digital age and and, and talking oh. about the, that's <laughs> well. Uh, and you were right to mention visions of sport. Um, Bob, I think, came up with the first edition of that, and we were all fairly well involved um, in that. And then uh, I think. Um, the second and third uh, editions, uh, I was already over in the States by then, um, in 84, when we got the contact for the, uh, to be official photographers for the 84 Olympics. And, um, yeah, Bob uh, and others did a terrific job running with that. And, um, it's, it, it, uh, transmorphed into, um, specialized visions didn't it so adrian did visions of cricket and i think dave did visions of golf and so on which was a good way of uh specializing amazing so yeah so i mean again you, i like how you just brush over you know we became the official photographers of the olympics i mean you've gone <laughs> in 1968 uh, as, an, as an amateur and then 1970s you know early 70s you're starting your own agency and then by 1984 you've gone on to become the official photographers for the um, International IOC. Olympic Committee. I mean, yeah. yeah, the IOC. So, I mean, how did was that? Just uh, obviously, you have, you know, you've got sales, and you've got, you know, your obviously your imagery is speaking for itself. But how how did that how did that sort of come? You know, was that was that you guys approaching them? Being active in the movement helped, and. Um, my two big sports were the two main Olympic sports, uh, track and field and aquatic sports. Those were the two that I really liked. I was actually official photographer. I was the official photographer to both those governing bodies, IAAF and FINA. And at the Olympics, what I would do would uh, be the first week was all aquatics. And there was only a, a crossover of a couple of days which was mainly heats in the morning for the athletics, for track and field. Uh, and um, so I would shoot mainly the swimming until that finished and then immediately switch to the track and field and um, was able to get 
infield credentials for that. But basically, it was paying our dues, being involved with the sport, and like, and just putting something back, you know, not trying to sell every damn thing, just occasionally dishing out a few. I'll give you a case in point. Um, president of the British Olympic Association at the time, I think it was the 70s, mid-70s, he came out of our office one day in Morton, and um, he said, look, I've got to do this lecture, and I need a load of photos. Can you help out? And I said, sure, Ken. And um, so what do you need? And I was able to help him illustrate his talk. He was very pleased about it. And in the course of conversation, I think over lunch, we he mentioned that in the basement of the British Olympic Association were all these plate glass slides or plate glass images um, from the 1908 Olympics, wow. which was in London. And he said, you know, nobody knows what to do with them. They've been in the basement. The building's been bombed. It's been flooded. You know, God knows whether they're usable or whether you could rescue them. And I said, tell you what, I said, we'll take care of all your current imagery. Let us loose on that place and we'll see what we can do with those images with one condition if we can rescue any we can use them but with uh, courtesy of the British Olympic Association byline so in other words we'll credit you every time and um, uh, and we won't ask for any anything else you know and in return we'll keep you loaded up that helped a lot looking back on it because we were able to rescue not only the 1908 Olympics but the 36th Olympics. Wow. Because every, um, in every Olympics, the IOC has to, by its charter, keep a record, photographic record and a written record of all the statistics and all the pictures and everything else and probably nowadays film as well as a permanent record of the game. So we, in the early days, we came up with all these pictures and then not just the olympics i also did deals with other organizations that had historical collections of photos that were no longer in business and sort of bought their old imagery so our library became not just current but historical as well that helped and it helped with people like uh the international olympic committee and the other governing bodies and really it was the same people in both you know, like the president of the Track and Field Federation was, I think at the time, was um, on the executive of the IOC and so on. So a lot of it was getting to know people, like socially as well as business-wise and uh, sending their functions occasionally and making our photos available. And that's, that's how we sort of got in with the uh, IOC. And then, of course, when we got the contract, we were one of the few companies that could come up with 30 specialist photographers and backup staff. I think for LA, we had 33 people there, from um, shooters to uh, editors to uh, technicians to even to motorcycle guy that would run run. And the freeways. He, had, he probably had the toughest job of everyone. Getting stuff from A to B in LA was not easy. 
So, I mean, can you, I mean, I'm, uh, again, I'm fascinated by this stuff. But, so, you, uh, truck side, pool side, you've, you're shooting, I mean, would you go through, uh, you know, just say from a, a race, you'd go through a couple rolls of film for over the space of a, an hour or two, or what, what was the, what was the sort yeah, of... Yeah, well, again, you see, you've hit on something that uh, everything revolved around film in those days. Not just was it black and white or was it color, but was it slow film, medium film, or super fast film? So the, the reason super we fast did, being what thirty two hundred ISO sort of thing being the super fast uh, well, sixteen would that be the super fast? That was the maximum we could push. The tungsten film for every indoor event like swimming was all indoors, uh, gymnastics and volleyball and basketball and stuff all indoors. So you had to use tungsten. Uh, color uh, ectochrome ept ectochrome professional tungsten i think it was and it was rated at 160 you could push it quite comfortably by one stop to 320 but 640 was about the maximum wow. and you on 640 you were really struggling so consequently you needed the fast lenses but film was the be all and end all so you and plus film was expensive I used to say by the time you'd bought the film and processed it, um, a lot, you know, you'd, you'd might as well take a $10 bill out of your pocket and burn it. So it encouraged you to be a, to shoot selectively rather than blast off in all directions, you know, and hope. So um, one of the first things we had to do was make sure we were adequately supplied with film for whatever um, conditions we would meet that particular day. So at, at the pool side, for example, I would um, shoot fairly sparingly. I'd try and get a good stock shot. And fortunately, another another um, jumping off at a tangent. Fortunately, in those days, um, the aquatics events were dominated. The swimming was dominated by the Australians, the Americans, and the East Germans. Uh, it was like a three-horse race. <laughs> I remember, uh, well, uh, Neil Leifer, um, who you might have heard of, uh, Sports Illustrated photographer in those days. He he didn't shoot a lot of he didn't shoot a lot of Olympic kind of sport until the Olympics. And he used to get poolside next to me, and he say, "Well, Tony, who's going to win this next race?" And it would be like the women's hundred meters medley or something. And I'd say. Oh, uh, I think uh, Lane 5 will win this. And after about five races, he said, damn, he said, you're good. He said, you've called every single winner so far. And I said, yeah, what do they all have in common? And he looked at the program. He said, well, they're all East German, aren't they? I said, right, you answered your own question. So it was a lot easier to predict the winners and so you could concentrate on them. But the main thing was the start and the finish, the reaction shots at the finish, because let's face it, swimming is not an easy sport to shoot. All you've seen is their heads, and how many shots ahead in action, you know, can you take to get something different? The butterfly gave you a little bit more scope because they, you know, were heaving out of the water. But man, it was a difficult sport to get an interesting action shot. So I loved the starts and the reaction shots of the. Excuse me. Uh, the uh, the finish of the race uh, for track, of course, that was different. Then um, for track, it was all about position. 
yeah, as long as we had guys at the finish line, I would do my best to get infield and encourage the others to go somewhere else so that we didn't all end up shooting very, very samey kind of pictures, you know. And uh, lots of guys, Bob, mine was a great one in the early days for going up to the stands and shooting down and getting nice shadows and compositions. Yeah, different angles. And another guy I remember would um, would be very keen on starts and you know tension before the race and all that stuff and the occasional false start dramas and so on. So it was all about position and just getting a credential in the early days was the name of the game and it still is, isn't it? And it's harder and harder nowadays, from what I understand, to get a credential. Uh, because it's such a popular profession now. In my day, it wasn't popular, um, and we weren't regarded with any status at all. Uh, That hasn't changed. (laughs) Well, we've gone down now because of the paparazzi. You know, people now look at all photographers as paparazzi. I remember being at a Super Bowl shortly after Princess Di died, and walking off at half time uh, under the tunnel and having guys hanging over, hurling abuse at us, hanging over the uh, balconies there, saying, you you know, you paparazzi, you're filth, you know. Yeah, and absolutely uh, angry yeah. uh, with us for what they thought causing Princess Di's accident. Um, and then, of course, all the... Film stars, you know, uh, having um, incidents with paparazzi and so on. So it was, um, we didn't have a very good image um, after that. And I think it's lasted and we've got to combat that by being responsible, you know. Um, But the thing is, we always policed ourselves at at the sports events. Yeah, we we had this Professional Sports Photographers Association quite early on because we realized that we only needed one of our colleagues to step out of the line and we could all get banned. You all suffer. Yeah, we all suffer. We said, look, guys, we're all in the same boat. Let's have an association among ourselves and then we can go to the Wimbledons and the Athletics and the Wembley Stadium football people and say look we're responsible professionals give us a chance give us a position where we can do what we are sent there to do and we'll be no trouble at all if you don't give us a position we can't answer what's going to happen because some of us are going to you know feel impelled to climb the barrier run on the pitch do all these crazy things and we all lose so once they realized we're reasonable people um, they were pretty accommodating yeah, they were relieved that we were, you know, prepared to talk professionally with them. So they gave us the positions and said, right, you're responsible for policing them. You know, we're not going to put somebody there. You've got to police yourselves. So we did. And it got to the point where we'd sit down. I think uh, Atlanta 96 was the last one I was involved with in any way. <clears throat> sat down with the NBC people and the... Uh, Olympic people and organized, you know, various areas where the photographers could go. And God, we had to fight for those positions. We really had to fight. Television didn't want us anywhere near their people. 
So it's amazing wants... how much hasn't changed. <laughs> Don't surprise me. <laughs> but, you know, just to get 15 photographers on the infield was was an issue at one point. Um, but, yeah, so, you know, the old saying about location, location, location being the most important thing. If you're not in a position to get the image, doesn't matter how good you are, it's gonna you're gonna it's gonna pass you by. So we did try very hard in the early days to ensure that you know when somebody had gone out on a limb and got us a position and taken a chance on us, we made sure they were well taken care of in terms of pictures. We never bribed anyone, didn't need to. They wouldn't have responded to a bribe, I'm sure. Not at that level that we were at, but we made sure that they, they were never short of photos for whatever projects they had going. So we had to bite the bullet on sale sometimes, but um, in the long run, it was worth it. And yes, we were able to get those Olympic positions. And from that point on, everything changed because, you know, we were there and very often had prime positions at each each event bob martin's now a photo chief at many of these uh, large events, yeah including the yeah Olympics. i was so delighted. the one that's uh, setting up our positions like at london i know i was working at london uh, fortunate enough to work at london uh, 2012 yes and uh you know we had great positions and uh same thing i remember speaking to bob about uh yeah fighting with tv you know he'd find a position say we want to go here and then you know, yeah. a couple of days later, TV would say, oh, no, you know what? That looks quite nice, actually. Good idea, Bob. We'll take that one instead. So uh, I think that, uh, it's amazing yeah, how Bob, much has changed, but how much has stayed the same with, uh, that, with everything you've been saying. <laughs> that was another breakthrough, having a photographer yeah. be, you know, in charge of photo positions. Uh, after the um, 72 Olympics in Munich and all the dramas that that entailed, and the... They didn't have a world championships of athletics in those days, uh, but they had a world cup. And the next world cup was going to be in Montreal in uh, 70. Sorry. Um, yeah, the next world cup after the Montreal Olympics was going to be in 77, I think. And it was going to be in the Olympic Stadium. And. Uh, the guy from the LA Olympics were already been appointed uh, official venue for the 84 Olympics. And he came around and I absolutely lambasted him about the lack of positions for photographers. And I really tore into him and he was sitting there speechless. I just came here to get some information. And, and at the end of it all, he said, i tell you what, he said, you be the photo chief for the World Cup. So I did, um, and I saw myself at the end of it, never again, because you have to have an order of priority and stick to it, because everyone wants to be your mate, and they'll say, Tony, you know, just try and get me in here, will you just try and do this, just try and do that, and if you try and accommodate everybody, you can't, and you just have to say, look, you know, the prime positions go to big agencies in those days Associated Press, UPI, Reuters, those kind of multinational agencies and then, you know, so on down the list. And um, so I took my hat off to Bob when I realized he'd taken on the whole of the London 2012 thing, but I've spoken to a lot of photographers. They all said he did a superb job. He did. 
I said that as that's the first thing I said after we'd finished the Olympics. I said, you know, the positions we had, even like for, um, I think it was the uh, triathlon. Yeah. Uh, you know the the iconic buildings, um, the That's marathon, right. all that kind. Yeah. You know, he 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 made sure that we had spots that would get those iconic sort of you know the yeah. athletes, um, and it, including the you know uh, you know whether it be the Paralympics or the Olympics, you know, having those iconic shots of the athletes, the winners, the um, with all those iconic sort of shots that you know that you know that in you know fifty hundred years time will still be shown as yeah this is the what pictures that say this is the London Olympics as opposed exactly. to Rio or anywhere else yeah um and i actually just quickly I, there was another name which um you, we haven't mentioned yet but pascal rondo oh know, pascal rondo yeah i always he, think uh, of Pascal. Yeah. yeah i met him last year for the first time uh, the world uh sorry the european athletic championships were on in uh, amsterdam it's, that's uh, right I'm based, yeah. I'm based in the netherlands so um oh, yeah, yeah, he okay. was the photo he's the photo chief he was the photo chief there, so I met oh, Pascal, wow. which is another name that's come through your um Oh yeah, he was uh, your tutelage. <laughs> well, not so much my tutelage. He was um he was already artistic when we first came across him. He worked for Gerard Van Dyster to start with. And uh he came over and joined us and by that time, I think it was the middle eighties, I was already uh, in the States, I stayed after the 84 Olympics in LA and started All Sport USA with a lot of help and feedback from the London office, of course. But R Pascal arrived just after I'd left and uh, I virtually never came back. In fact, All Sport had a, um, a Visions of Sport exhibition and, and I suddenly found that my uh, visa uh, if I was to go out and come back again, I would have major problems with my visa. So I remember they um, they said, "All right, that's all right. We'll go ahead without you." You know, which they did very successfully. And um, uh, it was just a a problem for me not being there and seeing. Like I didn't know Dave Rogers that well, so I can take no credit for Dave Rogers, no credit at all for Pascal. And they were already, but the the people that we did have in place were, you know, did what I used to do and nurtured them, you know, in the sense, tough love sense, critique their work and, you know, try. I always used to think that my job wasn't taking pictures so much as recognizing ability in other photographers. And a bit like a manager of a soccer team, trying to put the right people in the right spots, you know. A lot of kids like Mike Powell, for example, and his brother Steve were classic examples. They didn't come into the business out of a fascination with sport. So uh, not like Dave with his golf or Adrian with his cricket or me with track. They came generally. So it was a question of try all these different sports and see what, what his aptitude is and chat to them and find out what really turned them on. And with Steve... It was the motorsports, you know, powerboating particularly. He loved powerboating. So we, you know, he specialized in that and we started getting contracts and then commercial contracts and so on. And his brother, uh, Mike, was, he, he was a terrific shooter, but he didn't really, he wasn't really involved in the sport. And I always used to think, you got to feel a sport, you know. If, if you don't feel it, how's someone supposed to, relate to your pictures 
if you don't feel it. You know, it's not just a technical exercise. And so he was technically brilliant. And, um, but his real interest was adventure sports, you know, climbing ice falls and mountaineering and stuff like that, which in those days weren't recognized sports. Nowadays, they've got all these endurance races and everything else and Iron Man's and stuff. And, but in the early days, it was a struggle with Mike was trying to motivate him to, you know, to get involved more in the sport, get to know the competitors, you know. Uh, I've regarded my job as recognizing talent in other people, whatever it was. Might not even be photographers like Lee Martin, who's coming over for a Getty conference in San Diego uh, over the weekend, apparently. Uh, I'll link up with him then. But he joined us and he was a natural salesman, organized, friendly, nothing threw him, you know, nothing phased him. Um, we had a guy he's called still, John. He's still still leading the Getty team as well. So, very uh, much so. I understand he's top earner and all sorts of kudos and uh, director and everything. And, you know, it was a no-brainer for Lee. He never really wanted to be a photographer. He was quite happy on the sales side. Most of the people in the library wanted to become shooters. And another key person in the early days was John Gichigi. I don't know if you, uh, you heard that. I name. learned all my boxing off John G. There you go. Legend. <laughs> now, he's a classic. John was our, uh, John was our staff and darkroom guy. Yep. And was brilliant at it. But inhaling all the fumes, the chemicals and stuff, uh, he was having constant chest problems. And his doctor eventually told him, you've got to get out of that bloody dark room. It's killing you. And uh, it's like being a miner, you know, down a coal mine. He was yeah. getting constant chest complaints. So we realized he loved boxing. So, you know, there again, suggested he followed, you know, where his passion lay, which is the sport, and he became a really top boxing photographer. And again, you know, using his interests to develop, you know, his photography, and we all benefited. Just a quick one with John G. I, I, I edited for John lots of times, and actually that's uh, how my position as a photographer sort of became available. John G. was uh, retired. Yes. And... And he, uh, he, I bought, you know, I'm like every other photographer, I guess, buying lots, was buying lots of books, especially, you know, back in the day. And, yes. um, and, uh, he was the only, uh, all sport slash Getty photographer that had a book in this book that was late, listed the hundred greatest photos of all time. And, you know, you've got Carter Bresson and all these sort of iconic sort of, you right. know, French and, you know, all these amazing photographers. And John G was the only photographer who had a photo of Chris Eubanks coming out of one of these fights that was sort of uh, spotlights and, you know, the yeah. crowd sort of screaming. And it's sort of like this iconic shot of the, you uh, know, the, the fans uh, looking at this man as he comes out with all these, the backlights and the spotlights yeah. on him. And it's like, okay, this, uh, so yeah, working with John G, I, I took over his sort of uh, boxing uh, London, yeah. you know, your call um, was sort of a, a, a daily 
uh, well, not daily, but like a, a, a regular stop for my um, for my boxing uh, education as well. So okay, uh, lots of portrait shoots with John G as well, and uh, yeah, legend legend of a bloke for sure. Oh yeah. What, before we, uh, I want to go back um, and sure. believe me, I love tangents because I'm one of for, for tangents as well. But I want to go back just quickly to the to LA um, the swimming pool. You you would shoot your rolls of film and then would you would have the guy on the motorbike pick them up and then take them oh, to yeah. the... Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, just, just to... Uh, I can tell you, um, first of all, before I forget, LA was the last Olympics where the aquatics was held outdoors. That was kid in a candy store stuff for me, and there's still another half of our conversation to go. At Getty, that image of Bob Beeman is so ingrained in our DNA that to speak to the man that took the image and started it all has to be one of my favorite guests so far. I'll leave it there for now and just say that the next episode will be out sooner rather than later. Did you find this podcast informative? Is this giving you any insight into the job or industry you didn't know before? What am I doing right or wrong? Do I still sound like a doofus or is my microphone chat improving? Is my accent annoying? You can contact me on Twitter or Instagram on AllSportSnapper, one word, as we've mentioned many times before, or my website, AllSportSnapper.com, and let me know anything I should or could do for future shows. As always, feedback is welcomed. As you know, this is a sponsor-free show, and I have not asked for any donations, but I will ask for something. Please write me a review on iTunes. I spend many hours recording and editing each show and giving so much information for free and I keep asking and you keep ignoring. Surely some of you have a minute free to write me a review. You can subscribe to the show via iTunes or SoundCloud so you don't miss the release of part two of this show. Many thanks for letting me into your headphones or car stereo and last thing, of course, observe, listen and practice because your best photo could be one frame away. 